Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is my book review of the book Never Split the Difference. And calling this a negotiator's manifesto would be selling it short. It's an ethical social engineer's guide to getting what you want in nearly every type of human interaction. And in this book review, I am actually going to be talking with my wife, with Mrs. Roseland. And this book was so good that I wanted to talk about it with you mm-hmm. because we need to do negotiating sometimes with each other, but you know, we're a team, so we need to go do negotiating with other people. And so I uh, had been telling you about this book as I was reading it. And this book was mentioned to me by a guy who's in the Limitless Mindset audience. And he said, you got to read this book, Jonathan. It's really great. So I listened to people's suggestions. If you have books that you think I should read, please let me know and I will check them out. So this book... is written by a veteran hostage negotiator. His name is Chris Voss. And the different principles of negotiation in it are illustrated by cases from his career dealing with kidnappers, criminals, and terrorists around the globe, globe, along with examples applying the lessons learned in the business world. So first of all, let's talk about what is negotiating. Do you know? Well, negotiating is when both sides are happy. When both sides are happy. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have something, I have something, and you want my something. <laughs> but I have terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. So here's what the author had to say about it. Negotiation serves two distinct vital life functions, information gathering and behavior influencing, and includes almost any interaction where each party wants something from the other side. And negotiation is at the heart of collaboration. It is what makes conflict potentially meaningful and productive for all parties. And here's a line that he repeats a couple of times. It's, it's pretty good. I like it. Which is that ultimately negotiation is the art of letting someone else have your way. Uh-huh. Yes. So. So that's what I said. Both parties are happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, that's his, that's his idea is moving towards less of, I think a confrontational mode of negotiation. And he also emphasizes the importance of information, that the information gathering is really in there, in the negotiation, which might not be what we think about. A lot of times when we enter some type of negotiation, we are just thinking, oh, this is what I want. This is what I want. And actually, we want to focus a little bit more on gathering information. 
So I made this meme that I thought was kind of cool from this movie that we watched together. The Devil's Advocate. Mm -hmm. That great scene where they're on that weird uh, penthouse uh, overlook of Manhattan. And Keanu Reeves says, are we negotiating? And what does the devil say? Always. Yes, that's right. And I think that's uh, a re- that was a great line from the movie because the devil is always negotiating. So shouldn't we? That's true. Okay, so let's talk about listening while, while you listen very attentively. So listening and negotiating is crucial and something that we are generally pretty bad at. Quote, It all starts with the universally applicable premise that people want to be understood and accepted. Listening is the cheapest yet yet most effective concession we can make to get there. By listening intensely, which is what my wife is doing right now, a negotiator demonstrates empathy and shows a sincere desire to better understand what the other side is experiencing. Most people approach a negotiation so preoccupied by the arguments that support their position that they are unable to listen attentively. In one of the most cited research papers in psychology, Jeffrey A. Miller persuasively put forth the idea that we can process only about seven pieces of information, not if you're doing dual end back training, then you can process more, But he said that we can only process about seven pieces of information in our conscious mind at any given moment. In other words, we are easily overwhelmed. There is nothing more frustrating or disruptive to any negotiation than to get the feeling that you are talking to someone who isn't listening. And listening allows you to uncover what are called the black swan factors in the negotiation. And we'll explain that a bit a bit later on. Quote, in every negotiation, there are between three and five pieces of information that were to be uncovered would change everything. Do you think I'm a pretty good listener? Yes. Okay. That's the right answer. <laughs> And also true, of course. (laughs) On active listening. Have you heard of active listening? Mm -hmm. Okay. What is active listening? When you listen attentively. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's what he says. There's one powerful way to quiet the voice in your head and the voice in their head at the same time. Treat two schizophrenics with just one pill. Instead of prioritizing your argument, in fact, instead of doing any thinking at all in the early goings about of what you're going to say, make your soul an all-encompassing focus, the other person and what they have to say. And this is a little bit counterintuitive because a lot of times in conversation, Especially if we're having a conversation that's kind of important. It might be a negotiation. It might be a date. We're often thinking, what is my response going to be? We're thinking, they're talking and we're thinking, 
okay, what can I say that's going to make a good point or make me seem smart or attractive or make my offer seem really appealing? And he's saying that instead you want to be a bit more uh, meditative and you want to actually try to kind of just clear your mind and just focus on their words and their ideas. He talks about on effective mirroring. Do you know what mirroring is? Yes. What is it? When you repeat the words and the actions of the other person. That's right. Quote, a mirror is when you repeat the last three words or the critical one to three words of what someone just said. Of the entirety of the FBI's hostage negotiation skill set, mirroring is the closest one gets to a Jedi mind trick. Simple, yet uncannily effective. Simple, yet uncannily effective. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most important. That's the most important. Actually, I thought one of the most important words was Jedi mind trick. Mm -hmm. That's, That's what really catches my attention because we want to be Jedi biohackers, right? So this one's pretty good because, yeah, uh, you'll find yourself in arguments like with loved ones and the other person will say something and then you'll be like, okay, let me respond with my point after they make their point. And what's really most effective is to give a really short say, okay, so what you're saying is, this and this. And then you move on to your point. And then your point becomes much more powerful. He has a really cool phrase that he likes to use, which is tactical empathy. Quote, when we observe a person's face, gestures, and tone of voice, our brain begins to align with theirs in a process called neural resonance. And that lets us know more fully what they think and feel. And he's got a empathy hack that I think is kind of cool. He says, turn your attention to someone who's talking near you or watch a person being interviewed on TV. As they talk, imagine that you are that person. Visualize yourself in the position they describe and put in as much detail as you can, as if you were actually there. And I've heard this also described that if you really want to train your empathy, that it can be good to watch TV with the sound off, where you don't hear their words and you just pay attention to the body language of the characters. From time to time, uh, people ask me, how do you biohack Empathy. And empathy is crucial to productive human interaction, and you'll certainly profit from upgrading your empathy. And there's two things that I recommend, which is first to read fiction. And I discussed this in my review of the book, The Shallows. Reading fiction or autobiographies places you in the heads of characters, which exercises empathy in a way that listening to podcasts or watching videos does not. And secondly, this was talked about in Sam Harris's book, a mindfulness or a meditation practice 
upgrades empathy as well. There was a couple of studies that were done on that. So now we're going to talk about labeling. This is something that I think I mentioned to you. And often in a negotiation or argument, you'll be running up against the raw and irrational emotions of the other person. Mm -hmm. And so instead of hitting back with your own emotions, you want to recognize and label their emotions. Quote, labeling an emotion, applying rational words to fear, disrupts its raw intensity. Research shows that the best way to deal with negativity is to observe it without reaction and without judgment. Then consciously label each negative feeling and replace it with a positive, compassionate, and and solution-based thoughts. And this is kind of where you apply where someone will be making someone will be making a point and then you summarize you summarize their position back to them you summarize their emotions back to them and you say so you're feeling so you're feeling this and they'll be and they'll be like yes uh and they'll and they'll start to be like yes i'm feeling that and then often you can move a whole lot closer to the resolution of the disagreement or whatever by just saying, okay, so you're feeling this. All right. Um, why are you feeling that? And then you can get them to talk their way out of their uh, irrational little maze that they're in. He also describes the accusation audit. So you can take the sting out of, that's a phrase that attorneys use. You can take the sting out of the negatives or downsides of your proposal or objections by uh, by addressing them up front. And this will allay somewhat their concerns and mental roadblocks to reaching an agreement. So, for example, like I'll talk to my brother here, and he's going to be getting flights to come and see us. And I know that it, uh, it's not cheap to fly from Colorado to Europe to come and see us. So I will kind of, I will address that right up front. I'll be like, Hey, I know this is kind of expensive for you to come and see me. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that I'm not able to come visit you there in Colorado. And that will take a little, that'll address maybe a little bit of resistance that he might have. The author writes, In court, defense lawyers do this properly by mentioning everything their client is accused of and all the weaknesses of their case in the opening statement. So then he talks about why you want to get to know, which is a little bit counterintuitive. People are often thinking, well, in a negotiation or in sales or dating or whatever, I want to get to yes. I want to get the other person saying, yes, 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 yes. And so you want to implicitly give your negotiating counterpart permission to say no from the outset of a negotiation. And uh, a researcher calls it the right to veto. He observes that people will fight to the death to preserve their right to say no. So give them that right 
and the negotiating environment becomes much more constructive and collaborative almost immediately. You can be sure that everyone you meet is driven by two primal urges, the need to feel safe and secure and the need to feel in control. And this is because saying no gives the speaker the feeling of safety, security, and control. You can use a question that prompts a no answer, and your counterpart feels that by turning you down so he has proven that he's in the driver's seat. Good negotiators welcome, even invite, a solid no to start as a sign that the other party is engaged and thinking. So can you think of any examples of no questions? Starting with don't you? Don't you. So you want to ask questions that are looking for a no. Mm. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's, it's I'm, just, a... I'm just trying to think right now. Yeah, yeah, this is a counterintuitive. Looking for a no. Yeah, you're, you're looking, you're, yeah, you're, you're looking for a no. So I would say, I would say something like, do you think it's, do you think your dog is going to be really unhappy if I don't go and walk the dog with you later? I don't think so. So that's a no. And you could also say something like, like, uh, if we don't, if we don't invite such and such person, if we don't invite some friend of ours to a dinner, do you think that they will really hate us for it forever? No. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So these are so these are questions where you're seeking a no answer from the other person. Yeah, like for example, okay. Do you think that if you hadn't helped my dad, he would have hated you forever? No. See? No. So that would be that would be like a good that, and so you want to use these no questions mm-hmm. in the beginning of the of the thing ideally you can use them you can use them throughout because they establish more they establish more agreement overall and they make the other person feel good but you'll especially you'll enter these negotiations where in the beginning both sides are kind of insecure or sometimes there'll be, you know, this power imbalance in a negotiation where the other person feels pretty insecure from the, from the outset. But, you know, you still want the other person to do something. You don't want to just power over them. Mm-hmm. So you'll start by answering, by asking them a no question. But I suppose the, the nuance to this is that you don't want to, you don't want to ask a absurd no question. Like, do you think do you think that I should just wear dirty underwear forever? <laughs> Guys, do you think he should wear dirty underwear forever? No. <laughs> yeah. 
You want so you, you want Do you think I should walk around naked all the time? Yes. <laughs> That's not not a great example. Not a great example of a no. Okay, what about in the street? In the street, that's a no. See? That's that's a no. So you so with your no questions, you want to yeah, you are asking something that you're looking for a no. You're looking for something they might say no to, but you don't want it to be too much of like a vindictive, sarcastic type of type of question. You want it to be within the bounds of the bounds of reason. Mm-hmm. So you could often, I think you could often preface this type of no question. Okay, I have I have a question here. Yeah. Can you spend a whole week in in a room locked with a computer and Ariel? I think I could if she's not. The, Ariel is our little Pomeranian, which is very poorly behaved. <laughs> but I think I could probably. Probably pull... Well, no, she would be pooping and peeing on the floor. Yes. I don't like to clean that up, so... No. <laughs> I got it. I got a no from you. Okay, great. She's gotten to know. So, the next thing that's important is getting to... That's right. These are these are the two magic words that we want to hear. They're, they're even more magical than hearing yes... So the sweetest two words in any negotiation are actually, that's right. So you use a summary of their position, of their feelings, to trigger a, that's right. The building blocks of a good summary are a label combined with paraphrasing. So you want to identify, re-articulate, and emotionally affirm the world according to them. And this is an advanced pace lead technique wherein you describe their position, concerns, and motivations to get them to agree and say the magic words that move the negotiation forward, which are, that's right. So he has some examples in the book that are pretty fantastic. I think he had an example where he was in the Philippines and there was some terrible terrorist in the Philippines that had kidnapped some people and the police in the Philippines were just being way too over aggressive in the negotiation and they were saying, you know, you need to release the people or else we're just going to send our commandos in there to kill you all, that sort of thing. And so then... Chris, the author, he started coaching the negotiation and he was like, okay, what, this is what you need to do is you need to, you need to start describing back to them their feelings and their emotions and describing back to them their ideological worldview that's motivating them to do the kidnapping and get them to say, that's right. And I think there was an example where he actually had a, a, kidnapper that was like on the verge of killing a hostage but then they changed their mind once they got them to agree yeah that's right you understand our worldview and they decided to release the hostage instead so it's a pretty powerful phrase to try to elicit that's right it is that's right mm-hmm. okay slow slow down 
is the next important thing. Quote, going too fast is one of the mistakes all negotiators are prone to making. If we're too much in a hurry, people can feel as if they are not being heard and we risk undermining the rapport and trust we've built. He talks about nonverbal communication. Most of the time, you should be using the positive, playful voice. It's the voice of an easygoing, good-natured person. Your attitude is light and encouraging. The key here is to relax and smile while you're talking. A smile, even while talking on the phone, has an impact tonally that the other person will pick up on. Have you ever noticed me doing this, that I'll get on the phone to talk with someone, and even though we can't see each other, I will, I will smile as I'm about to talk to them? Yeah, I think I have. Okay. The language of negotiation is primarily a language of conversation and rapport. If you're an assertive personality type, be particularly conscious of your tone. You, you will not intend to be overly harsh, but you will often come off that way. So that's probably something I need to worry about. He also describes the late-night FM DJ voice. Use this selectively to make a point. Inflect your voice downward, making it calm and slow. When done properly, you create an aura of authority and trustworthiness without triggering defensiveness. And he mentions on body language... What is the body language that people often make when they feel real confident and they feel like they're in charge? It's, it's what I'm doing right now. They cross their, their hands? The steepling. The steepling of the fingers. The steepling of the fingers. Yeah, this is called steepling of the fingers. When you've got, when someone's, when someone's kind of like this, when they've got their hands mm -hmm. like this. When someone's, usually if someone has their hands like down, sometimes sometimes you'll see someone who's sitting in like a really relaxed way and that can be, that can be a symbol of feeling, of feeling pretty confident, but sometimes it's also just a, a symbol that they are really, that they're lazy or that they are unengaged. But often, especially when you see a man and you see him where he's kind of got his, his hands together like this, this is a symbol of confidence that he mentions in one of the examples when he was actually negotiating with one of his bosses. There's a documentary, a 90-minute documentary on body language that I recommend to everybody. I linked it in the blog post for this book review. And body language is kind of hard to teach or communicate in podcast format. So I suggest that people check out that documentary because it was it was kind of cool it gives all these different examples of comparing different world leaders like uh, like they were showing George W Bush and Vladimir Putin meeting mm -hmm. and they were showing the really different body language that these two guys had and what it was communicating that was revealing the uh, geopolitical tension in between these uh, world leaders Next thing he talks about is calibrated questions. In negotiation, knowledge is power. You want to ask some calibrated questions that subtly push your counterpart into a more agreeable headspace. Quote, 
Most important, we've learned that successful negotiation involves getting your counterpart to do the work for you and suggest your solution himself. It involved giving him the illusion of control while you, in fact, were the one defining the conversation. Giving your counterpart the illusion of control by asking calibrated questions, by asking for help, is one of the most powerful tools for suspending unbelief. First off, calibrated questions avoid verbs or words like can, is, let me make sure we're getting this right. Calibrated questions avoid verbs or words like can, is, are, do, or does. Those are close-ended questions that can be answered with a simple yes or no. So these calibrated questions are kind of like the opposite of the no questions where we're looking for a no. Instead, they start with a list of words people know as reporters' questions. Things like who, what, when, where, why, and how. The, those words inspire your counterpart to think and speak expansively. But let me cut this list even further. It's best to start with what, how, and sometimes why. So let's give some examples of this. So let's say, okay, go ahead. Why did you eat the rest of the cake? I don't eat cake. <laughs> don't listen to him. I'm a biohacker. I have a video. I wouldn't eat cake. I have a video of him eating chocolate cheesecake with blueberries. Babe, why would you why would you tell them that I have that you have a video like that? Why would you want people to know because that I, such a thing occurred? Because it's true. <laughs> All right. Guys, it was on my birthday last year. I think it was two years ago. Last year. I think it was two years ago. <laughs> last year. <laughs> But he was very cute in that video. I promise. All right. Here's some questions that you would use as these calibrated questions, as these mm -hmm. open-ended questions. You should say something like, what about, what about this is important to you? How can I help to make this better for us? How would you like to proceed? What is it that brought us into this situation? How can we solve this problem? What is the objective? What are we trying to accomplish here? And then the final question, how am I supposed to do that? Why is Jonathan so awesome? Why is Jonathan so awesome? I'm not sure if I'll need to use that. In a negotiation. Yeah, but it's a why question. It is a why question. And it's definitely a yes. Yes answer <laughs> question. The answer is yes. Why is Jonathan so awesome? Yes. He gives an example. When you go into a store, instead of telling the sales clerk what you need, you can describe what you're looking for and ask questions. Were you doing that today? When? When you went to the store today. When we went to the little stores today. Yeah, I think I did. 
you were describing, you were saying, you were saying, this is what I'm interested in. What do you suggest? Well, I guess in this situation, you kind of knew what you needed. Yes. So you were probably just walking in, making demands. Yes, I was just asking if they had what I needed. Mm-hmm. Okay. You'd probably use that more if you were in a... If you were in... If you were making a bit more of a higher-end purchase, you'd probably want to use that, is walk in and start describing what you need. And then they'll often get a little bit more engaged with it. I would use this... Different times I'd be, I'd be like traveling to a new country and I'd go to a new cafe or someplace like that. And I'd want to establish myself as, as someone that they might care about a little bit more as opposed to just thinking, Oh, here's another foreigner getting a coffee. So I'd often, I'd know what I want is that I'd order a double espresso cafe Americano. Same thing I always order everywhere. But a lot of times I'd walk into a new cafe. And then I'd say, what What do you recommend? What's a strong coffee that'll pep me up? And then the person will kind of say, well, we have this, we have this, we have this. I'll say, what do, what do you like? And I'm like, ah, I like this thing. And I'll say, ah, you know, I think I'll have a cafe Americano. And I'll order the thing I wanted anyways. But I've got the other person engaged a little bit more in me. And then they're going to be a bit more happier when they see me in the future. Maybe they'll give me a free coffee. Next, he talks about detecting lies. In your nego negotiations, you're going to have to deal with lies. The book gives insight into some interesting research on lying. Quote, in a study on the components of lying, Harvard Business School professor Deepak Malhotra and his co-authors found that, on average, Liars use more words than truth-tellers and use, use far more third-person pronouns. They start talking about him, her, it, one, they, and their rather than I in order to put some distance between themselves and the lie. And they discovered that liars tend to speak in more complex sentences in an attempt to win over their suspicious counterparts. It's what W.C. Fields meant when he talked about baffling someone with bullshit. The researchers dubbed this the Pinocchio effect because just like Pinocchio's nose, the number of words grew along with the lie. So, for example... Let's say I was going to lie to you about something. Like you asked me, uh, like you asked me. Have you brushed your teeth today? And I'd say, I'd say something like, I'd say something like, you know what? Your dog was out there in the hallway making a mess of things and I look down in exacerbation at a steaming pile of dog crap out there in the hallway and then, uh, yeah, the, I, I brushed the teeth. That might be something where I'm using way too many, way too many words 
and I'm starting to talk about other things and other factors instead of just answering the question. The dog is always to blame, guys. It's just- a bad talk. It's no, a she's bad not bad. Dog. She's just misunderstood. Right. Right. <laughs> That's right. Right. Hitler, he was just misunderstood. <laughs> Hitler wasn't that beautiful. No, no, he wasn't. But equally artistic, perhaps. <laughs> You know, I think your audience will be kind of interested in Ariel now. I think we should publish a picture. I have published pictures on Instagram. Go check out Ariel on Instagram. I also did a podcast that I linked to on life hacking lying. I go I go a bit deeper into the research on it and some different life some different uh, life hacks for it. The next question, and this is the negotiator's question, and I'm going to endeavor to use this question more, which is, how am I supposed to do that? And this is the negotiator's question. As your counterpart makes demands, engage their cognition by asking how you're supposed to accomplish what they are suggesting. For example, you'll be negotiating something like a car, which the seller wants $20,000 for, but your budget is only $15,000. So you'll say something like, it is a nice car. My budget is only $15,000 because I'm going to college right now. How am I supposed to pay $20,000? And then what they'll offer to do is they'll offer to split the difference and sell it to you for... 17,500. And at that point, you want to stick to your guns. And you'll say, well, you're being very generous, but I'm sorry, my budget is only $15,000. How am I supposed to pay $20,000 and afford my higher education? Next, let's talk about leverage. In theory, leverage is the ability to inflict loss and withhold gain. The party who feels they have more to lose and are the most afraid of that loss has less leverage and vice versa. To get leverage, you have to persuade your counterpart that they have something real to lose if the deal falls through. And next, let's talk about black swans. They are the game changer. Quote, black swans, those hidden and unexpected pieces of information, those unknown unknowns, whose unearthing has game-changing effects on a negotiation dynamic. I began to hypothesize that in every negotiation, each side is in possession of at least three black swans, three pieces of information that were they to be discovered by the other side would change everything. My experience since has proven this to be true. And interestingly, the black swans are often in their quote-unquote craziness. Often in negotiation, we'll get exacerbated and think or say privately, they're crazy. That guy's crazy. She's crazy. They are being totally irrational. And what we see as irrational is often the wrestling of the feathers of a black swan, of the things that we don't know about that the negotiation actually hinges upon. And so this is why those calibrated questions are really important and why that labeling is really important. Because when they start acting crazy and irrational, 
we can try to investigate a bit further into their feelings and they'll often they'll often just tell us what the black swans are they'll often reveal these things to us like on a on a first date let's say on a first date one of the two people is also dating someone else but <laughs> the person doesn't know it is that a black swan yeah that would be an example of a black swan So the other person is supposed to ask questions like um what else do you do in your free time besides dating me? Yeah, that would be that would be a pretty good that would be a pretty good question. Or maybe it might even be better though if you turn that into a into a why into a why type question like what so you could say something like um uh why are you using the dating website and then at that point they might say they might say well i'm bored with the relationship that i'm in or you could say something like uh why is it that you sent me a friend request originally you could say that sort of thing and that might that might open them up why if they if they met each other at a supermarket at a supermarket mhm like some of the people in those scary psychopath stories that i tell you <laughs> yeah i'm not sure if i'm a fan of meeting meeting at a supermarket Maybe. well let's say they met they met in line okay at the supermarket they were just tired of waiting in line and mm-hmm. they started talking to each other mhm is that how lots of people find love here in bulgaria <laughs> i don't know <laughs> okay the next section he talks about you want to know their religion the book illustrates with a great example the importance of tailoring your approach and language to appeal to their worldview appeal to the worldview and ideology of your counterpart you can reach game changing rapport by understanding the other side's worldview their reason for being their religion indeed digging into your counterpart's quote unquote religion sometimes involving god but not always uh, and this inherently implies moving beyond the negotiating table and into the life emotional and otherwise of your counterpart. Let's talk next about negotiating price. And he suggests something called Ackerman bargaining. And this is the pro negotiator's formula for arriving at optimal at the optimal price. So you end up having your target price of what you want to pay for something what you want to get for something that you are selling at and then you want to set your first offer at 65% of your optimal price so let's say that i find a really fabulous new shirt it's just awesome it's a cufflink shirt it's, it's just the purple. right color it's light purple with kind of a cool artistic pattern to it and i say okay i'd be willing to pay 
a hundred leva for this. So my, so my first offer would be 65 leva. And then calculate three re- raises of decreasing increments to 85, 95, and 100%, and allow them to negotiate you up to the price that you want in, in the first place. And use lots of empathy and different ways of saying no to get the other side to counter before you increase your offer. When calculating the final amount, use precise non-round numbers, like say 37893 rather than $38,000. It gives the number credibility and weight. On your final number, throw in a non-monetary item that they probably don't want to show that you're at your limit. So a couple things on this. It's, it's often better. A lot of times we have this idea, and this probably varies a bit from culture to culture. Maybe you could tell me a bit more what it's like here. But we have this idea that we don't want to offend the other party with our initial price that we propose to something. That we're like, well, you know, I want to offer them a really fair price from the outset because, you know, then they'll feel that there's a bit more agreement. Then they'll feel that there's a bit more agreement. They'll feel a little bit better about the deal. So I should start at a fair price. But what pro negotiators do is they, is they start at a price that they think will be minimally offensive. They start at a price that, that is going to, that they think is going to push the comfort zone of the other person. And then what they can use is they can use those no, those no questions on top of that. So they start with a price that's kind of ridiculously low. And then the other person's like, and then the other person will be like, will be like, uh, will be like, that's, that's not, that's not a good, that's, that's not a good price. Um, or they'll say, uh, no, no, you, it, it has to be more than that. You have to pay more than that. And so then you'd want to, so then you'd want to ask them a no eliciting question. You'd say something like, do you think someone like me, who's a foreigner, would be a bad fit to live here in this apartment with the roommates that are living here now? And so then the landlord that you might be negotiating with is going to be like, no, uh, no, you're fine. We'd love to have you here. And so by eliciting those no questions, you establish a bit more agreement on their behalf. And then you can offer a slightly less offensive price amount and that will, and they'll be a bit more in agreement with you at that point. And then when you reach, let's say my price limit is, yeah, is a hundred leva for the fancy shirt. But I know that the actual cost of the shirt is say 140 leva. And I really don't want to go up to 140 leva. So at that point, what I would say is I'd say, okay, you know what? I've got 90, I've got 96 leva here in my wallet. Okay. And I can even give you, oh, I'll give you this candy bar. 
<laughs> that I just bought at a little store. And so then the person feels like, okay, they're getting really specific about the amount of money they have. They can't afford anymore because this specific amount of money is what they have. And then they're even saying, you know, hey, to make up for it, I'm willing to give some like silly thing extra that is not even a part of the negotiation. And he had a lot of uh, great examples where he got a really amazing deal on this really in-demand car that he wanted to buy. He had some examples in the book of people negotiating their rents this way. It's this Ackerman, uh, Ackerman bargaining formula seems to be real effective. And uh, I would say that formula probably makes the book worth it alone. Okay, negotiation is not logical, even though it might seem that way. In other words, while we may use logic to reason ourselves toward a decision, the actual decision-making is governed by emotion. Another simple rule is when you are verbally assaulted, do not counterattack. Instead, disarm your counterpart by asking calibrated questions. And importantly, loss is the greatest motivator. Loss aversion, which shows how people are statistically more likely to act to avert a loss, uh, loss aversion. This is a bias where people are statistically much more likely to go for a deal, uh, to avoid loss than to achieve an equal gain. So he gave some examples where people were negotiating for apartments and they would say some, they would say something like, well, this apartment is a hundred dollars over the price that I can afford. Can you come down? And they'd be like, no, 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 we can't come down a hundred dollars. And then they'd be like, well, um, why are you certain that you can rent the apartment to another person quickly and the apartment won't sit empty while you're finding another person. Something like that. And you can see that's the thing where the person is going to start thinking, oh, oh God, you know, it's a why question. So they're going to start thinking, oh, geez, I might not be able to find another person to rent this apartment and it might sit empty for another two weeks or another month until I find another person that's actually willing to pay the higher price. So I'll be willing to move down in price. And he talks about the F word, which is fair. Here's how I use it. Early on in a negotiation, I say, I want you to feel like you're being treated fairly at all times. So please stop me at any time you feel I'm being unfair and will address it. So that, that way the other person feels more secure. They feel more in control. And we are all concerned with fairness, but fairness means different things to different people. It's often counterproductive to claim that you are being fair and that they are being unfair. Because in their perspective, they're in someone's own head, they're always being the fair ones, right? So instead of saying, well, I'm offering you a very fair price, ask them a question that they can say no to, giving them a sense of control, and then find a way to ask, how am I supposed to do that? And you can see in the negotiation example that I gave, you, you want to, when you're rejecting a person's offer, you often want to compliment them. 
Especially if the other person, if the other person has moved their price some, you want to, you want to compliment them on that. Instead of saying, well, I'm offering you a fair price. You want to say, you want to say, you know what? You're being generous, but I'm sorry. And actually, one of the points he emphasizes in the book is that it can be useful to say, it can be useful to say, I'm sorry at different points throughout the negotiation. Say, oh, I'm sorry, but this is what my, this is what my position is. And this is what, this is what I need. And that you can, at that point, you can do a pace lead with them and get them going more in your direction. He also describes strategic umbrage. So when someone puts out a ridiculous offer, one that really pisses you off, take a deep breath, allow a little anger and channel it at the proposal, not the person, and say, I don't see how that would ever work. According to the research, expressions of anger increase a negotiator's advantage and final take. Anger shows passion and conviction that can help sway the other side to accept less. But obviously, you don't want to be angry a whole lot. And you want to name your range. In a recent study, Columbia Business School psychologists found that job applicants who named a range received significantly higher overall salaries than those who offered a number, especially if their range was a bolstering range in which the low number in the range was what they actually wanted. So when you're negotiating price, if possible, you want to say, you want to, if if you're going to begin by stating how much you can pay, you don't, or, okay, no, no, no. So if we were stating how much we were going to pay, then we would name, uh, then we would name a negative range. So let's say we walked into a fancy shop around here to buy something that we wanted. I would say, I would say something, I would say something, they'd say, well, what's, what's your budget? What's your budget for, uh, your vacation, for example? And so, so you would say, well, we want to go and have a romantic weekend on the Greek islands. And, uh, you know, I think we could, I think we could probably, we could probably afford in between like, uh, in between like three to 500 euros for that. Just for example, let's, let's just say. And so then that way, so 500 euros is the is the price that we actually want because they might they might have something uh, they might have something more expensive than that. Mm-hmm. Well, in that case, I think that we would have a hell of a vacation. A hell of a vacation. Mm-hmm. It might be good. Yeah. It would be awesome. Three to five hundred euros. Well, yeah, especially if we did it during the winter time. We could, you know, because it's not so popular during the winter time. Yes, that would be more than awesome, John. They might charge us more if we if we bring Ariel, though. You know, because she'll poop all over the place. <laughs> so the title of the book is Never Split the Difference. And he explains what this means. He says, I'm going to call bullshit on compromise right now. We don't compromise because it's right. 
We compromise because it's easy and because it saves face. We compromise in order to say that at least we got half the pie. Distilled to its essence, we compromise to be safe. Most people in negotiation are driven by fear or by the desire to avoid pain. Too few are driven by their actual goals. So don't settle. And here's a simple rule. Never split the difference. In conclusion, I really like this book. I recommend you read it. I recommend you read it, even though I think you may fall asleep in the middle of it. Oh, yes, I will. Unless I lace your coffee with some modafinil, perhaps. <laughs> My. What, what I liked a lot about this book is it follows this formula of anecdote, principle, and data, or research, which is a format that I really enjoy reading, especially in nonfiction. There's a lot of nonfiction books out there that they will sometimes just be total anecdote. They'll just be anecdote, 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 or they will just be principle, 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 principle. They'll just be all these big ideas that the author has about the way the world works. And they won't provide uh, stories and they won't provide scientific data or statistically significant pieces of evidence to back up what they're saying. And that always just makes me a little bit suspicious if it's actually useful, relevant, true information that is in the book. So I found this title to be really grounded and I would recommend it to almost anybody because all of us are dealing with negotiation. I'd especially recommend it to like salespeople and entrepreneurs because the social dynamics principles in it are timeless and will really add a heightened degree of tranquility to your interactions and dealings. So I'm going to put this on my must read list for mastering social dynamics, along with some other books I've talked about that I recommend that you check out, like Pitch Anything by Oren Claff, The 2AM Principle, and The 48 Laws of Power. I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. And I'm his wife. And we're the Limitless Roselands with our limitless, our limitlessly pooping Pomeranian. <laughs> yeah, guys, check her out. She's She's amazingly beautiful. We might even add her to the the blog post for this. Linked below this podcast. <laughs> yeah. We look forward to continued conversation with you.